We have finally arrived at Rome with the Apostle Paul. He is a prisoner, but he has found and lived the truth that makes him the freest man on earth. The book began with a promise from the Lord Jesus. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses. As we reach the last chapter, the Apostle Paul is fulfilling this command. Let's join Dave Wurtzen, our study leader, as we close the book of Acts. One of my favorite tunes that Sandy Patty sings is the song, The Gift Goes On. We're going to use that as our theme this morning. And the words of the song go kind of like this. The lyric, and you'll remember when I give you the lyric, it goes like this. The Father gave the Son, the Son gave the Spirit, and the Spirit gives us life so we can give the gift of love. And the gift goes on, and the gift goes on, and the gift goes on, and the gift goes on. You remember it? The Father gave the Son, the Son gave the Spirit, the Spirit gives us life, so we can give the gift of love, and the gift goes on. Remember that? How many remember that at Christmas time? You know, that song is a very simple tune, and it's words that just kind of stick in your minds. But as I thought about those words, I realized that that's the theme of the book of Acts. That's the entire message that Dr. Luke has been trying to get across to us. You see, Dr. Luke wants the gift to go on. What is the gift? Fundamentally, the gift is that Jesus Christ actually did rise again from the dead, that in history, by convincing proofs, it was demonstrated that He was alive. And what Dr. Luke is telling us is that even as he began the book of Acts with that risen Christ ascending to heaven, now, if we would have had it our way, how many of you would vote for leaving the risen Christ here? How many of you would say, well, listen, we want to really get this movement off the ground. I mean, we want this movement to really grow and develop. We want this church to begin to be able to get off to a good start. Why don't we have the ascended Christ, this one Savior that conquered death, why don't we have Him stay here? I mean, if you want to get a program off to a good start, that would be the way to do it. Have him set up his throne. Why don't you take it to Rome, the capital of the empire? Let him overcome Caesar now that he's paid for the laws of sin and death and made it possible for men to be forgiven. Let's just set up his kingdom in Rome and we can really get this thing off to a good start. Now, that's the way we would think humanly. Instead, what did God do? He took His Son away. For all intents and purposes, from a physical standpoint, He disappeared from planet Earth. What did He leave behind? 120 scared rabbits. He left behind Him just 120 meager disciples who were scared out of their willies. In fact, as the book of Acts begins, they're up in an upper room, 120 of them, not even sure exactly what they ought to do except they ought to pray. And so they're praying. They choose a twelfth man. Remember that lesson when we studied about choosing Mattathias? And then the Holy Spirit came upon them. The invisible presence of Christ came upon them. And Peter, the great apostle, gave the first church message. And 3,000 people were saved. 
But even then, the odds against the movement were very slim. Peter and John were thrown in jail by the religious leaders. Stephen, we studied about Stephen. He was a man, a young Hellenistic Jew, that became very powerful in persuading men and women about Christ. They killed him. They stoned him. They killed James, one of the disciples. All the believers had to be spread all over the empire. Only the twelve got to stay in Jerusalem. Even they were cast out very, very soon. I mean, how many of you would really bet on this movement? The Apostle Paul gets saved. That was really a bright spot. When Saul of Tarsus, this hellfire and damnation persecutor, not preacher, but persecutor, suddenly gets saved. And it looked like a bright spot. And so he comes back to Jerusalem and then the Jerusalem authorities get all uptight with him. And for the whole last third of the book of Acts, we've been trudging along with this apostle. I mean, if you really wanted to get a movement off the ground, put him on radio and television. Let him speak to the masses. Put him in the Colosseum of Rome, but don't arrest him. Don't lock him up in jail for two years and then for another two years. Don't lock him in jail in Caesarea. Don't have him go through one trial after another where everyone says he's innocent, but they still keep him in jail. They still lock up the greatest proclaimer that the church had in the first century. And then when you bring him to Rome, don't lock him up again in Rome. Let him travel freely. Let him go to Spain. Let him go all over the empire. What I want you to start to think about is that Dr. Luke has exposed that from a human standpoint, this church is not going to fly. From a human standpoint, the movement is not going to make it. But Luke's point is, the gift goes on. You see, against all the odds, against all kinds of human thinking, you see, it's so easy for us as human beings to get discouraged. And we start to doubt and we start to say, well, maybe the message isn't true. Maybe the forces of the world are the ones that really have the answer. I mean, how could God ever be who He says He is when He does everything so badly? I say that reverently, but do you ever feel that way? Many times in this life, it looks like God is doing things very badly. If only he'd let us have a little bit of control, we could really get this thing going. And yet, when we start to think like that, how far away we are from the way that God genuinely thinks. I want you to open your Bibles to the very last chapter of Acts. You probably wondered whether we would ever make it this far, but we have. Acts 28. And in Acts chapter 28, we have the final scene in verses 17 and following. And Paul is in Rome, but he's under a house arrest, which is not nearly like being thrown into a deep pit of a prison like the Namartine prison that he ended up with about two or three years later. Now he's under house arrest. He has a Roman soldier that's chained to his wrist, but the chain isn't too heavy. And he's able to invite people to come. And the very first thing he does after visiting with the believers after three days it says that he invited the Jewish leaders of Rome to come. Look at verse 17. Three days later, he called together the leaders of the Jews. These are the Jewish religious leaders of the city of Rome. When they had assembled, Paul said to them, My brothers, 
Although I have done nothing against our people or against the customs of our ancestors, I was arrested in Jerusalem and handed over to the Romans. They examined me and wanted to release me because I was not guilty of any crime deserving death. But when the Jews, and this would be the Jewish leaders, when the Jewish leaders of Judea objected, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar. Not that I had any charge to bring against my own people. For this reason, I have asked to see you and to talk things over with you. It is because of a hope of Israel that I am bound with this chain. They replied, we have not received any letters from Judea concerning you. And none of the brothers, none of the, none of the fellow Jews from Jerusalem have come, who have come have reported anything evil or bad concerning you. But we want to hear what your views are, for we know that people everywhere, I want you to get this, people everywhere were talking against this set. Now what's going on in these verses? Most of us, when we're in a bad situation, don't want to go out and meet those who are speaking evil against us. How many of you just relish eyeball to eyeball, head to head, talk to talk, confrontation. When someone has a charge against you, when someone is accusing you, when someone maybe even has your life in their hands, you see, these, these Roman Jews could exert a strong influence at this time on Nero. Nero had just married a beautiful Jewish girl. And like a lot of beautiful girls, she had a lot of influence. She could really have a part to play in Paul's trial. There was a Jewish actor that Nero in 62 AD was very enamored with. And everybody knows that an actor can have a lot of influence. So these Jews could have played a very strategic part in how Nero heard Paul's case. Now what does Paul do? Well, Paul calls who could have been his enemies into a direct one-on-one, face-to-face confrontation. Instead of letting them try to figure out what kind of a man he was and what kind of an individual he was and what he was being accused of, Paul was the kind of a man that all the way through his ministry has done this. Where was the very first place that the Apostle Paul went when he went into a city? Think back through the book. As we've gone on several missionary journeys with Paul, What's the very first thing he does when he goes into a city? He finds a what? You're saying it. Tell me loud. A synagogue. The very first thing Paul would do is go to the Jewish synagogue. And he would try to interact with those in the Jewish synagogue. He would open up the Old Testament. And beginning from Genesis to Second Chronicles, the Jewish Bible, the Hebrew Bible is arranged differently. It's the same books. But in the Hebrew Bible, you go from Genesis to Second Chronicles. And Paul would do that Saturday after Saturday. He would stay in the synagogue trying to win the Jewish people to Christ to the fact that Jesus was the Messiah. Why didn't he go to the Jewish synagogue of Rome? Well, prisoners don't exactly get to go where they want to go. I mean, if you get arrested, he couldn't. He was a prisoner. He wasn't able to. So what did he do instead? Did he sit in his house and say, well... The Lord's really finished with me. I guess the Lord's forgetting about me. I guess I've only got maybe two or three years more to live. 
And after all, the Jewish leaders wouldn't listen to me anyway. No. The Apostle Paul, guys, I don't know whether they sent out RSVP invitations. I don't know how they handled it. But somehow, Paul got word there were at least seven synagogues around the city of Rome. And Paul invited the Jewish leaders to all come to his house. And he begins with the leaders. There's a proper procedure and a proper plan for every activity under heaven. And one of the things that we need to learn from the Apostle Paul is to follow proper procedures. And and this is just an ingenious example of it. The Apostle Paul calls all the leaders of Judaism to come in the city of Rome, and he begins what we've just read to explain to them, I am not arrested because I've done anything against our people. One of the things I think that the Lord wants to help us to do as a church family is to get beyond the idea that we are a religion. And out there are many other kinds of religions. As our church family grows and grows, there's going to be a tremendous tendency for a lot of you to get all wrapped up into church. The organization of the church. And you're going to begin to talk about our church versus your church. And basically what you're communicating to the world is our church and your church and that church and that church and that religion and that religion. And as long as you start to debate like that, everything is argumentative. Everything gets away from the real truth. You see, in our day, there's a tremendous debate going on about whether or not you can be Jewish and be a believer in Jesus. Now, let me say that again. Across the world today, there's a tremendous debate. In fact, if you travel in Israel, they have it right in the paper. You'll see articles in the paper that debate this question, where the rabbis debate, can you be a believer in Jesus and be Jewish? A friend of mine that has a Jewish mission outreach in the city of Philadelphia, and I've mentioned this to you in the past, but it really illustrates what I'm talking about, Another friend of mine wanted him to give his testimony after one of the 76er games at a big voluntary rally. You didn't have to come. It was just a voluntary rally. And he was going to give his testimony as a Jew who believed in Jesus. The Jewish lobby of Philadelphia was so vehement against that that the owner of the 76ers shut it down. He let someone else come, but not a Jew that would testify that he believed in Jesus. Why not? Because that's a very explosive issue. And a Jew today, you always need to remember this, a Jew today feels that in order for them to believe in Jesus, they need to leave the culture, the heritage. They need to leave bar mitzvahs. They need to leave circumcision. They need to leave going to the Jewish synagogue. They need to leave what it means to be Jewish in order to become a believer in Jesus. In fact, when I was raised as a kid, there were hardly any alternatives. If you were a Jew, and if you were going to believe in Jesus, it was automatically assumed that you would leave your Jewish culture and come over and join what we call a Christian culture. Although a lot of people would disagree with me, one of the things that the book of Acts is trying to get across to you is, listen, Jesus is bigger than a culture. Paul could honestly say, as he traveled around the Roman Empire, he did not try to get Jews to stop being Jewish. 
He didn't try to get Jewish boys not to become sons of the commandment and to be bar mitzvah. He didn't try to get Jews not to eat kosher food. He didn't try to get Jews not to meet in the synagogue on the Sabbath. What did he try to get Jews to do? He tried to, to proclaim to Jews that there was a man called Jesus who was God. God manifest in the flesh who lived on this earth. Now, don't go to sleep on me. You've heard that so many times, it doesn't do anything to you anymore. But that's the most outlandish, most unbelievable thing I could ever tell you. You see, if you'll read the New Testament, if you'll get out from the sleepy, boring way you've read it from the time you were a kid and try to really read it for the first time, it's an incredible book. Paul actually went around telling people there was a man that lived 25, 30 years ago. In the latter part of his preaching, it was that close. He would say there's a man that lived just 25, 30 years ago in Palestine. His name was Jesus of Nazareth. You remember him? There was a big, big, lots of newscasts about him. Paul could tell Herod Agrippa, Herod, you know all about what I'm talking about. This thing wasn't done in a corner. You know all about how Jesus was crucified. You know all about the rumors that he supposedly rose again from the dead. And I want to tell you, he really did rise again from the dead. Now, people that talk like that are really different people. You see, what we've done, we've made it all very comfortable. You see, we've made it all, that's our Christian faith. That's our Christian religion. So if you're talking to an Islamic person, you talk about your Christian religion, and he talks to you about his Islamic religion. And if you're talking to a Jew, the Jew talks about their Jewish religion, and you talk about your Christian religion, and everybody lives happily ever after. Now, all that would be fine and good if Jesus was a great teacher, if he was a great philosopher. If all Jesus was was like Buddha, like Muhammad, like the founders of every other religion, he was a relatively good man that gave us a good code of ethics. He lived a life that's unbelievable. If that's all there is to it, then that basic approach that, you know, you have your religion, I have mine, would be fine. There's only one problem with that. That's not the objective Jesus who's actually there. You see, if that's the kind of Jesus there was, then Paul should have never invited the Roman Jewish leaders to come and talk to him. Why talk to Jews? They had a religion that was several thousand years old. Paul was raised in that Jewish faith. He was raised as a Hebrew of the Hebrews. Why not leave them alone? They were enjoying a time of prosperity in Rome. Why worry about them? I'll tell you why. Because Paul, from the bottom of his heart, believed that salvation history, that God's plan for the redemption of people culminated in a crisis moment in Jesus of Nazareth. Paul really believed with all of his heart that Christ, that Jesus was the Christ who died on the cross for man's sins, who rose again from the dead, and he wanted to share it with Jews. And so a week later or so, after they appointed a day, the whole bunch of them come. Just a whole lot of Jews come to share with Paul. And what we have here is Paul talking from early in the morning to late in the evening. Look at it. It says in verse 23, they arranged to meet Paul on a certain day 
and they came in even larger numbers to the place where he was staying. And from morning till evening, he explained and declared to them the kingdom of God. I want to ask you a question. Is our Christianity creating any waves? In other words, at your work, are there any waves at all because you're a Jesus follower? Now listen, I'm not going to ask you to be like Jimmy Swagger and get up and sweat profusely and yell and shout. He's a very strong, powerful communicator. How many of you think you're gifted to do that? You're going to go on national television and you're going to sweat and yell and bang your fist and hold your Bible up and kind of curl it a little bit. You see, a lot of you are under the misconception that that's what God's asking you to do. And you labor under all kinds of guilt. In other words, you've been working alongside a colleague for months now, some of you even years. And you've been praying that you could get up the courage to talk to them about Jesus. But what you're trying to get up the courage to do is to go through about an hour presentation of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. And that can be very discouraging because some of you, your tongue gets all entangled. They start to get off in all kinds of religious questions and you don't know what to do. I want to share with you, I'd like you to make a very simple commitment this morning. All that I'd like you to do this coming week is talk to at least one other person. And here's what I want you to do. It's very simple. You don't have to take out how to have a happy, meaningful life. You don't have to take out the four spiritual laws. All you need to do is this. In fact, you can just blurt it out if you want to. Okay? All I want you to do is say this. I want you to say to someone that you know, I want you to say this. You know, we've known one another for a little while, and I want you to know something. I believe, I really do believe, it's not just something I do Sunday morning, but I want you to know that I really believe that Jesus of Nazareth rose again from the dead. Jesus Christ is alive. Now, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, but I want you to think in your heart, do you really believe that? And don't think that it's easy to believe that. I think it's very, very hard to believe that in a modern world. But I do believe that today. You know that all that I do at a funeral, you know, basically all I do at the funeral is I'm driving to the funeral, I say, Lord Jesus, I'm going to have to get up before an audience today. And they're in a time of grief. Lord, what I want you to do is through the weakness of some things that we say, I want you to make it come alive for them. I want you to help them to realize that we really believe it's true, that we really believe Jesus rose again from the dead. When I do a wedding, I got to do a wedding last night. Basically, I asked the Lord the same thing. I said, Lord, we're going to go through these vows. Most of the people that come to the wedding, they tune out. You know, you start going through the ceremony, ba-da-da-da. You know, I don't start out dearly beloved. I try to get over that because that puts everyone to sleep. The droning thing. Some of you have been raised with the guys that get out their little books Page 517, oh yeah, here's the wedding ceremony. And then you tune in. All that I do at a wedding is try to make it to come across that I believe. In fact, how many of you have ever heard me say, and I want you to realize, I don't say this because I get paid to say it. And I don't say this because that's my profession. I'm a minister. I really want you to know I believe this. I want us all to do this as a church family. There's unbelievable power in that. You see, Paul was not a Jimmy Swagger kind of a preacher. Paul did not yell and scream. There were apostles that yelled and screamed. I think Peter was probably pretty loud when he preached. And Stephen, I know, was really fiery. Paul's enemies said Paul was a lousy preacher. 
He just wasn't powerful. And yet the Lord used him mightily. Why? Because Paul got across to an audience. It's true. Jesus actually did rise again from the dead. Now, how many of you think that's really complicated? All you do is you get some friend this week, not here in church. Everybody expects me to say what I'm saying here. Everybody expects me to say what I'm saying here. In our culture down here, I can yell at you. I can give you a hellfire and damnation speech that will make your hair on the back of your neck stand up. Nobody in Texas could care less about that. It's part of our culture. That's what we do. People even come. You go to Dallas and you preach like that. People will come by the hundreds to watch you perform. You know, you've got all kinds of entertainment. In the fall, we have football, southwestern football. In the winter, we have southwestern basketball. And then on Sunday for entertainment, we have hellfire and damnation preaching. But I want to share something with you. Go out this week and at your work, say to one of your colleagues, in a quiet moment, just say, there's something I really needed to share with you. You know, we've known another a little while, and I just wanted to share something that really means a great deal to me. I want you to know that I believe in the very depths of my heart, not just as a religious philosophy, but I believe objectively that Jesus rose again from the dead. And I just wanted you to know that. I wanted you to know as a friend that that's the conviction of my life. I'm really trusting in the fact that Jesus rose again from the dead. Now that's very simple, but I want to share something with you, brothers and sisters. That message is explosive when people say it and genuinely mean it. Because Paul got thrown in jail for that. We've been going for several weeks studying the life of the Apostle Paul. And he's had one trial after another. And every time they say, well, he's an insurrectionist, but that charge won't hold up. They say, well, he is a rebel against Nero. He's a rebel against the emperor. That charge won't hold up. Everybody that examines this man says he's not guilty, but he's still in jail. Everybody is still uptight about him. You know why? They were uptight about Paul because of a hope in the resurrection. And what Paul does is from morning till evening, if you look at it, in verse 23, it says, And from morning till evening, he explained and declared to them the kingdom of God. And he tried to convince them about Jesus from the law of Moses and from the prophets. You see, Paul was not the kind of a person that got uptight, you know, about half an hour messages. A friend of mine that's a pastor just got in touch with us and he was very, very discouraged because he went about ten minutes over during the Sunday morning message and some of the board after the message were just furious about it. They were just furious that he went over 10 minutes. That kind of a church family is so far away from the kind of reality and the kind of conviction and the kind of, of hard commitment to Jesus. Paul would talk with people from morning until evening. I want you to look at this verse. It says when Paul talked from morning till evening, the idea of him explaining and declaring to them, don't think there was a monologue for 12 hours. Don't think that Paul got up in a high pulpit and declared for 12 hours, because everyone would go to sleep. 
But I want to share something with you. When someone's communicating and people in the audience are interacting and they're sitting together and they're debating back and forth, you could take it for 12 hours. I mean, I would, have, I would give my right arm to have been able to be a fly on the wall with ears to be able to listen to Paul talking with these Jewish leaders for 12 hours and these powerful rabbis in Rome saying up and saying, no, Paul, I disagree with you. And Paul drawing them out and trying to lead them to faith. I mean, it was exciting. That's what makes it exciting. You see, what we do is we get lulled to sleep into doing our thing. And we can be there, you know, really, we're just millions of miles away. Paul didn't teach like that. He wasn't real powerful. He wasn't a great declaratory speaker. But boy, he could mix it up in a discussion. And he could take Jewish rabbis, and not pridefully, You see, Paul never was trying to put someone down. He wasn't trying to use superior intellect to put them down. He was trying to lead them like a shepherd to believe in the Christ. Now, how many of you, when you read what it says here, you say, well, he he talked, he declared to them the kingdom of God, tried to convince them about Jesus from the law of Moses and from the prophets. How many of you would like to know what Paul said? Doesn't give it to us here. And I used to read that and say, well, man, that's really too bad. I really like to know, how did Paul ever talk to them from the law and the prophets? How did he ever convince them? Well, we're not going to do it this morning because we're out of time. But Acts chapter 13 gave you what Paul did say to them. You see, Dr. Luke, all the way through the book, has been showing you the way that Paul talked to different audiences. In Acts chapter 13 at the synagogue of Antioch, Pisidia, Paul went into a synagogue with Barnabas and Paul talked to the Jewish leaders and the Jewish people in Antioch of Pisidia and explained to them, beginning from Moses, he starts right with a history from the book of Genesis, traces it right up through King Saul to King David, and then he goes right from King David into the person of Jesus of Nazareth. And you can learn how to tie the whole scripture together by going back and reviewing that lesson. How many of you have ever read the book of Romans? The book of Romans explains to you a lot of what Paul shared that day. Now, how did the Jewish leaders respond to it? Just the way people are going to respond to you. If you'll go public in the marketplace, in the dusty places, not just in the church, but in the dusty places, if you start telling people, I really do believe Jesus rose again from the dead. You'll start getting into conversations. Well, prove it to me. Why do you believe that? And then you'll start digging into the Scripture. Now, how are people going to respond? Well, often you hear these marvelous stories about the person at work that you've worked next to for 20 years, and boy, you finally got the courage to talk to him about Christ, and right there in the lunchroom, they started to cry, and they got down their knees in front of the whole cafeteria, and they hollered out for Jesus to save them. And you jump in the taxi cab and you start to talk to the taxi cab driver. You say, have you how to have a happy, meaningful life? And the taxi cab driver says, boy, have I been looking for someone to talk to me about that. And they receive Christ as your Savior. You get on the airplane and start flying. And sure enough, you sit next to a poor widow who just lost her husband. 
and she's very frightened about death, and she says, boy, am I glad you sat next to me, and I want to receive Christ as my Savior. Get on with it. Tell me how to believe. How many of you ever heard stories like that, one after another? Now, be honest with you. How many of you have ever got up the courage to start going public about Jesus? A lot of you have. How many of you have prayed, Lord, today I want you to give me an opportunity to talk to someone? You all have. Now, how did people respond? Honestly, how did people respond? A lot of them don't respond at all. A lot of them, you know, yuck. You know, a lot of you, you really wonder. You know, they don't want to listen to what you're saying. Some of them are bored to tears. You know, maybe one in a 200 really get excited about what you're saying. And so you get really discouraged. Because you start to say, well, I must be doing something wrong here. Billy Graham, just all he does, all he has to do is go like this. <laughs> and the people pour down the aisle. I mean, thousands of people get saved. So you say, what's wrong with me? I'm very serious about this. I'm very serious. Because I think a lot of you are very, very discouraged. And you don't talk to people about Christ because people aren't jumping out of the woodwork when you talk to them. And I think a lot of times in evangelicalism we're communicating to believers that if you tell people, they'll jump out of the woodwork to get saved. And that's why I love God's Word. Because God's Word doesn't hype you. It's not like one of these sales pitches, you know, where they try to get you to sell some special kind of toothpaste, and if you brush your teeth with this toothpaste, your teeth will turn beautifully white, and, you know, all you ladies go out and start having little home toothpaste shows, you know, invite people in, and you're going to be able to drive around a gold tube of toothpaste around. You know what I'm talking about? You know, the people that really get rich in those approaches is the people that sell you the toothpaste to start out with. It's a hype. But I'm not saying it's all, all wrong and everything, but I, I'm just saying that that kind of an approach, I don't think is fair. We bring the same thing over into, into telling others about Christ. That's why I love the Bible. Look what it says. The greatest apostle of the first century is talking. He talks for 12 hours. I mean, if you can't convince somebody in 12 hours, they're not going to be convinced. Look what it says. Some were convinced by what he said. There you go. You say, Dave, there you, there you go. They all got saved. No, it doesn't say they all got saved. It doesn't say Paul folded his arm to close his eyes. Everybody came forward. There was a marvelous revival in the synagogue of Rome. It says some were convinced. But others would not believe. We've got to realize if we're going to go public about Jesus, some will be convinced and others will not believe. Now, why wouldn't they believe? Because you're lousy in the way you present it. If you presented it a little bit better, if you gave it with more conviction, if you were a little bit more prayerful, then they would believe. The Bible doesn't say that. Look what it says here. Now, I want you, you talk about a man who's realistic. You talk about a man that doesn't have any hype. I want you to get this picture. As we close the book, it's unbelievable. A whole lot of Jews are gathered together. Paul has talked to them for 12 hours beginning in Genesis all the way to Second Chronicles, proving that Jesus rose again from the dead, that he died on the cross for their sins. Some believed, just a few. Most of them were unconvinced. Just before they leave, Paul says this. They disagreed among themselves and began to leave. You can just see it. All the Jews. 
They're talking. They're arguing. They disagree among themselves. And Paul had made this final statement. This is the last thing that Paul said. It's unbelievable. The Holy Spirit spoke the truth to your forefathers when he said through Isaiah the prophet, Go to this people and say, You will be ever hearing, but never understand. I want all of you to listen. You will be always hearing, but you'll never understand. You'll be ever seeing, but you'll never perceive. Why? Because this people's heart has become calloused. They hardly hear with their ears and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn. And I would heal them. Therefore, I want you to know that God's salvation has been sent to the Gentiles and they will listen. I want to share with you. You know why people reject Christ? Now, get this clear. You know why your associate at work does not receive Christ? Because their heart is troubled and hard and calloused. You know the reason that anybody in this room, the reason that any young person in this room that's listening to me now will miss it? I want to speak to you real straight. If you grow up in this church family, and you come Sunday after Sunday and listen to the Scripture being taught, and you go away to college or go away to work, and you mess your life all up, don't blame it on the people sitting next to you. You'll never get healing doing that. It's not somebody else's fault. It's not mom and dad's fault. You say, well, mom and dad didn't really make it real for me. That's not the point. They should have. But that's not the issue. You see, mom and dad are not Jesus Christ. You say, well, Dave, you know, you're inconsistent in some things. Yeah, I am. Ask Mary. There's a lot of them. But I'm not Jesus Christ. You say, well, man, I know some men in those churches who do so-and-so and so-and-so, and that's why I did what I did. They're not Jesus Christ. Don't blame it on anybody. As long as you blame it on somebody else, you'll never have healing. Every one of us have ears. We have ears and we're to use them to hear. We have eyes and we're to use them to see. The Jewish leaders rejected Jesus because their hearts were hard. They had calloused hearts. They had calloused hearts in the 7th century. And we can have calloused hearts today. You know, the reality of telling others about Christ is that a lot of people will reject because of one reason. Not because you didn't share the message hard enough or strong enough. But they had a hard heart. Their heart had a big scar tissue around it called pride. You see, what the Lord wants to help us to do is to challenge people to be honest. You see, what I'd like all of you to do is to be honest. I want every one of you deep in your hearts to ask yourself, do I really believe that Christ rose again from the dead? You see, if you really believe that Christ rose again from the dead, when you're in the back seat of the car when you begin to drive and it's your first time out and you go out with a knockout woman, young fellas, if you really believe Christ is alive, you'll believe Christ is in that car with you. And you will not stop and take 20 minutes that potentially could really destroy 
and hurt a lot of people. And I can stand in my head and tell you about sexuality from the Bible. But if you don't have ears to hear, if you don't have eyes to see, if you don't want to listen, then when you're in the situation with that knockout girl fellas or that very smooth-talking fella, it's happening all the time. I deal with it all the time. The most discouraging thing to me in the pastor is to see people hurt themselves because they rebel against the Lord. You see, that's where we decide, do I really believe? You see, Jesus is the only one that's strong enough to help us to have control over our own passions, to give us self-control. But see, if you're a young person and it's just a show, it's just something you do on a Sunday morning, and you don't really believe in Jesus, you're really not in love with Him, you won't be able to take the heat. You won't. It's too big for you. It's too big for all of us. It's too big for all of us as moms and dads. You see, if we don't really believe it, then we're not going to care for all the new people moving in. You see, our hearts can become callous. But I want to share with you, don't get discouraged. Because the story of Acts did not close with a lot of Jews walking out of the room because their hearts were hard because their hearts wouldn't respond. It closed like this with these words. For two whole years, Paul stayed there in his own rented house, and he welcomed all who came to see him. Boldly and without hindrance, he proclaimed or preached the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ. And the gift goes on. The Father gave the Son. The Son gave the Spirit. And the Spirit gives us life so we can give the gift of love. And the gift goes on. 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 What is the gift? The gift is the power of a resurrected Christ who can give us eternal life. The power of a resurrected Christ that can help us have the power to live a pure life. Maybe even more wonderful, it's the gift of a risen Savior that even when you do blow it, even when your heart is as hard as scar tissue, if you'll only turn, if you'll only be genuine and come back to Him, He can make your heart soft as a baby's once again.